0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Greatest Games on the Blizzard. My name is Mark Speller, with me is Jonathan Wilson and with us is Herbie Sykes, a Turin-based journalist who specialises in the history of road bicycle racing and an author of a number of books, including the award-winning The Race Against the Stasi and more recently Juve, 100 Years of an Italian Footballing Dynasty. Herbie, pleasure to have you on the pod. Thanks for having me. Today we're going back to the 1934 World Cup final in Rome, that finished Italy 2, Czechoslovakia 1. Herbie, why have you chosen this game?
1: I've chosen it for, for a number of three reasons, but I think three specifically. Um, the first is that it was probably the first um, iteration, if you like, of football as a geopolitical or sport as a geopolitical construct. Uh, the fascists had spent cons- colossal amounts of money on new stadia. And the the players, the team, was indivisible from the ideology. So, so when they uh, when they wore the blue shirt, they actually represented fascism as well as Italy because they were one and the same thing. So that I think was important. We always think of the 1936 Berlin Olympics as one of the big ideological kind of sporting events. Also because uh, we've seen it, the kind of genesis of Juventus as Italy's team, as distinct to Turin's team. This was the, the first of what the so-called Juve Nazionale, which was um, a team yeah. packed full of Juventus players. Juve had the most money, and they the best players, as us. us. Uh, and thirdly, because there was match-fixing and all sorts of nefarious stuff going on with referees. And, um, so it's kind of if you like, set the trajectory for Italian football moving forward to some
0: degree. <laughs> no, there's a lot packed in there, Jonathan, the 1934 World Cup, uh, and a lot of it is not stuff that's happening on the field.
2: Yes, I think that's fair to say. I, mean, I think what's, what's amazing is, when you look back at some of the coverage of it, even in 1934, so the first World Cup had been in 1930, if you're Uruguayan, you believe that the Olympics of 24 and 28 have a kind of equivalent status, and certainly they are... Uh, proper global football tournaments. So even if you're being generous with how you sort of count these things, it's the fourth global sporting event because you know, the 1932 Olympics. In fact, there was no football the 32 Olympics. I think it comes back in 36. Uh, 32 Olympics was in was in LA, and it was for whatever reason they got rid of it. Um, but I mean, by 36, it's you have the very clear amateur-professional divide. So the fourth major global football tournament, and already people are saying. I'm not sure this has got a future. You know, the <laughs> the, the attitude of the teams. Uh, you know, there's some incredibly violent games, and you know my my sort of um, specialty in this period is is the more northern central European powers, so Austria and Hungary particularly, Czechoslovakia to a lesser extent. And there's this sort of romantic myth about the Nubian football that it was very artistic and very technical and there's great flair. Yeah, and, you know, like it's, and there's, a, you know, there's this perception in the Danubian countries that it's, you know, brutal Italians you know, kicking them out of tournaments. And, you know, Italy go on to beat Hungary in the final in '38. But actually, the quarterfinal here between Austria and Hungary, there's a brawl, and it, it's seen as this sort of disgraceful game, the sendings off. So there was a violent edge to, to everybody in this tournament.
0: Yeah, it was the first World Cup that required qualification, Should should say. Uh, 32 nations, rather, tried to qualify, 16 going through. Uh, to to straight knockout matches, and I was quite intrigued that if if a match ended in a draw after extra time, the replay would be the following day, and and often players who played in the original or the first game didn't make that replay for reasons Jonathan <laughs> sort of stated there. Uh, Uruguay boycotted the tournament um, as only four European nations had accepted their invite to 1930 when they hosted um, the World Cup. But but getting back to this tournament, I mean. It, <laughs> Again, Herbie, going back to the kind of the politics and so on. I mean, it's it's been accused of being rather overtly used by um, Benito Mussolini to promote fascism and his politics and and so on. I mean, and that is quite clear.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was it was. It's, it's, I mean, it, it was. It, it, I think it was the first genuine World Cup. I think I think mm. Uruguay. You know, for all sorts of reasons, hasn't have, haven't necessarily resonated around the world. I think this did. Uh, yeah, the Italians built beautiful new stadia. Uh, they built beautiful transport infrastructure because this mattered a lot. They had a lot more riding on this than kind of sporting hearts and flowers. Um, and was this it, because Italy was a fairly new nation? Yeah, it was. It was. It was only unified in 1861, obviously, mm-hmm. and um, and it had been, and obviously, conflict. Tends to create fidelity to the flag and those those kinds of things. And conflict was indivisible from fascism. In fascism, um, the individual was kind of fairly incidental, and the ideology glorified conflict, bloodshed. It was very bellicose at the best of times, and so um, and they realised very, very early on. The sports minister, a guy named Starace, realised very early on that um that football uh, obviously radio existed now as well, mm-hmm. and so as a as a means of disseminating this propaganda uh radio was very very useful it, it worked There was a very famous uh, radio uh, telecronista, radio a radio um a football journalist um so put it all together and it was the perfect vehicle it was a, it was it was kind of one for all and all for one. Cycling had been the most popular sport hitherto, but Mussolini and and the fascists thought that quite plebeian. Um, so and they promoted motorsports because they were cutting edge and dangerous, and, um, and 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 the drivers were fearless, and they were they were promoted as Italian patriots. And of course, football, this strength through ardor, was perfect.
2: But are, are they right in saying that that even the sort of creation of Serie A is a sort of fascist project to unify? Yeah, the absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a fascist Hitherto, there'd been uh, the, the Lega Nazionale, divided between the north and the south, it didn't really work. Uh, for but, uh, Seria was a kind of a reaction against the, what they call provincialism, provincialismo, which is Italians tend to be quite provincial, and they were trying to build a country. They were trying to unify, you know, the brigand south with the relatively speaking evolved north. So, mm-hmm.
2: yeah, yeah. And so there's then this ban on foreign players, which comes in in late 20s. Is that 2028? Uh, I,
1: tw- I think it was after that, actually. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a ban on foreign players that weren't of Italian extraction. Right. Um, so Hungarians, Czechs, the Austrians, as you mentioned, but not uh, the so-called Oriundi, who would be the Argentines. Obviously, uh, there'd been a huge Italian diaspora uh, millions of Italians had made for the Americas, and the Argentinian national side was full of Italian surnames. They were the sons of the, uh, of the diaspora. So, the most famous ones would be Orsi uh, and Monti, who both played in, in this World Cup final. In point of fact, um, and they were they were they were useful constructs in themselves because by in repatriating their talent, they were the proof that fascism was morally intellectually culturally superior to, to the kind of woolly liberalism that was that was being practiced elsewhere so so um, so yes they banned uh, foreign players that weren't of Italian extraction
0: hmm. uh, Jonathan in in the uh, Danubian nations as you mentioned earlier the likes of Hungary and so on had politics sort of entered football in a way that it had in Italy
2: um it it shaped it, but it hadn't been as as sort of directly involved you know i I think you know, from what Herbie was saying, particularly about radio, that really resonated because of the situation in Argentina mm-hmm. where um you one of your football is this great unifying force because all all you know Argentina is an immigrant nation you've got i think the start of the first world I think the figures are. Um, a million people of Spanish descent, 800,000 Italians, 400,000 Northern European Jews, 400,000 Arabs, uh, 40,000 Germans, 30,000 French, 30,000 British and Irish. So it's this great sort of melting pot. And they all do things in very different ways. And they all have very different ideas on how you should build a political system, on culture. And one of the very few things they do all agree on is when Argentina play football, they want Argentina to win. So when Argentina play Uruguay, (laughs) as completely arbitrary as that divide may be, they want the blue and white stripes to beat the the all pale blue shirts um so that's what you know football becomes this great sort of tool and it's, it's very self-conscious in argentina um but radio was was this great thing that uh even even though the vast majority of clubs were based in buenos aires if you were in the jungles in tucuman in the north or you in the you know the tundra down in tierra del fuego on a uh on a, a sunday afternoon you were listening to the radio and listening to to commentary and, and and updates from the games. And so you know, uh football and tango, because they had live broadcasts from the tango halls, are the two things that really sort of craft or pull Argentina together as a nation. So yeah. it, from it sounds as as though that is much more similar to the situation in Italy than the, what was happening in Austria and Hungary. Whereas I I think it's, it's almost the opposite of what's happening in Hungary, that it's so turbulent in those years immediately after the First World War that there is this enormous diaspora. So one of the things I find fascinating about Italian football of this period is they ban foreign players, but they absolutely don't ban foreign coaches. No. So was, there were 60 Hungarians coached in Italy between the end of the First World War and the end of the Second World War, 60. Mm. And uh, Vittorio Pozzo, who, who wins the World Cup in thirty-four and thirty-eight. He's really the first, am I right in saying this? he's really sort of the first great Italian coach? But there had been the influence of a, of a large number of great Hungarian coaches.
1: Yeah, I don't think Potter was a coach as such. He was very good Sorry, manager. Sorry, that's probably a
2: bad but, yeah, manager. Well yeah, but, bad but, but,
1: but no, you're right. He, he was the godfather of Italian football, if you like, or is perceived as such today. Um, but he wasn't particularly, um, from a technical point of view, he wasn't particularly highly regarded surround himself with people that were and yeah you're right this thing about the um about the I mean, the likes of our advice, those guys that were allowed to continue coaching i guess I, i i don't think the coach the coach at that at that time was perceived as a particularly significant figure i think um I think that probably came along much later with the likes of Herrera, as, as far as I can deduce. So, yeah, but they 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 were kind of technical and technical guys that weren't particularly newsworthy in their own right. I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, vice vice, I think writes the first coaching manual in in Italian. Yeah, uh, which I think comes out in twenty six or twenty seven, and Pozzo ends up writing the forward to later editions of that.
1: Yeah,
2: um, or maybe even the first edition because Pozzo had been the technical director of the national team from the first time in 24? Yeah, much
1: earlier. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, yeah, it's probably the first edition that Pozzo writes the forward to. But even before they
1: banned the foreigners, you, fi- you were finding they, they banned the use of English terms. So, corner, goal, offside, football, became il gioco di calcio because they needed to create a fascist-italian identity and a lot of the and a lot of those those um, central european players italianized italicized italianized created <laughs> uh, their names um because the 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 the, the, the environment generally was very hostile towards foreigners at that time i mean as far as i see
0: I mean, with with Pozzo he seems to be you know as you say this this manner he seems to kind of be He's an intriguing guy. Managed to sort of bring it all together. This idea of unifying a nation and and trying to get everybody. Else, he seemed to be quite good at that, from what I can gather. And you know, he, he pioneered. He was quite interesting. So he used used pre tournament training camps, uh, for yeah. example, which which not many others did as well. So is is he seen as um, you say was the godfather of, of, of Italian football and whatnot, but a very crucial man in this side and being almost... I know Brian Glanville's talked about his uh, uh, thoughts on, 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 on Pozzo's uh, 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 true political motivations and so on, but was he almost politician-like, if you see what I mean, in the in, in the dugout leading this side? Yeah, of
1: course, Pozzo, he had a journalistic background, so, hmm. so he was quite an urbane individual at a time yeah. when, you know, Italy probably only had 50% literacy. Um, so, yeah, he... Um, Seems to have been, I don't know how best
0: to describe it, but he knew how to work the system, maybe. Yeah, there wasn't that he
1: couldn't couldn't do, and there wasn't anybody that he didn't know. And obviously, prior to uh, the Agnelli's incursion in 23, it'd been an amateur sport, it'd been a genuine, had been an amateur sport. And so, um, so at a time of significant growth, he was this kind of avuncular figure, very intelligent, Mm. politically quite skilled. Who seems, as you say, to have been able to kind of knit this uh, this nascent sport together in some way? Yeah. Hmm.
2: I mean, I think his background is fascinating. The fact that you know he he comes from a a family that worked in textiles. Hmm. His family clearly set him out to be a textile manager, yeah. and you know he he ends up studying commerce in in Zurich and then in London, and then goes to Bradford to study textile factories more closely. And starts watching football, or, or carries on watching football, and he ends yeah, up. Yeah, well, becoming, that's kind of that's
1: Italian football in microcosm, of course, because they were in Bradford and Nottingham,
2: and you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and you yeah, know he goes to watch Manchester United, and, and and absolutely loves their their famous halfback line, the Duck Rebel halfback line of of yeah. Duck with Roberts, and Bell, and becomes becomes good friends with with Charlie Roberts.
0: All right, chaps. Let's go for a quick break, and then we'll talk about uh, Pozzo and the nineteen thirty four. World Cup final, a bit more. See you in a moment, everybody. Welcome back to the Greatest Games on the Blizzard. Um, Jonathan, uh, Vittorio Pozzo, we, we need to mention uh, the Matodo system, which did he pioneer, popularise? Uh, I'll, I'll, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, um, the, the sort of very romantic version of it is that because he was good friends with Charlie Roberts, he was a great mm-hmm. centre-half of the old school, that when English football moves to you know, from a two three five to the WM in nine twenty five, he he's sort of thinks that's too negative and too defensive in terms against it. And this is what he calls sistema, and he prefers metodo, where the centre half is, is he would still pick up the opposing centre forward, but he also had attacking responsibilities. So I think if you look at, at Monti, who, who he brings in uh, both at Juve and then then for Italy, the Monti was was sort of his famous. Um, He's, you know, he's sort of a first in that great line of Argentinians, Cinco's, number fives who sits at the back of midfield he was he was a thug let's be honest <laughs> he but he was a thug he was very good at football um and he was sort of when this sort of figure of terror in Argentinian football people were genuinely scared of him and he was a very quiet man off the pitch. right yeah, and very shy but then the 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 um uh, Pancho Barracho who uh, was the last surviving player from Argentina side from the 1930 World Cup final uh, the story he always told and I guess it's convenient to be able to tell this when everybody else is dead and <laughs> you know, nobody's going to contradict you is that the moment he said the moment he knew they weren't going to win that game was when he looked at Monty before kickoff, and Monty he said was just white and terrified because he'd got death threats from Uruguayan fans and he said he thought then if Monty's scared we're in big trouble here <laughs> But and Monti doesn't have a good game in the in the 1930 World Cup final. But he then moves to Juve the, the following year, and he becomes integral to Pozzo's Juve and then to Pozzo's Italy at a time when playing for more than one country was was very much a done thing.
1: Yeah,
0: mm. and we've mentioned Juventus a, a few times already, um, Herbie. But they're utterly utterly crucial uh, to this side. Nine of the 22 in Italy scored were Juventus players. Five of the starting eleven were as well. So um for a team that's sort of trying to unify the nation their core was very much in in tune with those juventus players
1: yeah it was because they they transformed football into a marketplace i mean that was right, right from the get go juventus were a, a, a side of kind of um, a very bourgeois uh, local football team uh, at the point at which eduardo agnelli becomes president uh, football is an amateur sport, and and the players live in their comune. They, they they work in their comune by definition. There are there are, no, there are no salaries involved. They're probably rewarded in some way. But yeah, I mean that was the that was the big Juventus project. It was and largely remains the Juventus factory team. Um, <laughs> and the first big scandal of Italian football, the. The Rosetta affair, where they signed, they they, they acquired Rosetta from uh, Provercelli. Uh, it was all, it was always rooted in money, uh, and so yeah. At that point, they'd uh, they'd won for by, by by the time the nineteen thirty four World Cup came along, they'd won four championships in succession. They were extremely powerful and they were extremely moneyed. Um, but the thing with Juventus, and I think it's important for. Non Italians to understand is that it had to be seen to be ecumenical that is that's to say not to represent this city but to mm. represent all of the italians and 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 all of the disparate its if you like know. so yeah they, that was, that was that was always the project because they they needed to sell cars in Florence and in Calabria and in Puglia and and you know the length and breadth of the peninsula and
0: and mm-hmm. Juventus was an instrument in that one of the non Juventus players in the side was the great Giuseppe Miazza. Was was he at this point? Was he the kind of the stu- superstar that that he is of Italian football now? Obviously, the stadium named after him and so on.
1: Yeah, I think he was. I think Jonathan would probably know much, as much about this as I do. But yeah, he was the kind of poster boy. I think he, mm-hmm. uh, the keeper Combi, the Rubber Man, uh, was a big <laughs> star. Uh, Monti obviously was a superstar. Double wardrobes and Orsi. Orsi was a kind of a prototype. The Messi, you could say, um, but um, Schiavi, the, the front two, Schiavio and uh, and
0: uh, were were big big successes. Yeah, well, let's talk about some of the, the football that was played at, at that tournament. Well, we should Itilli, just say on on the subject of Combi,
2: yeah. Combi had been this great star, but he was right at the end of his career. Yeah, yeah. and he yeah. was only playing because Cervelli um, had damaged his arm just yeah. before the tournament, so it was he, he, Although he was captain. And I think this remains the only World Cup final where both teams are captained by goalkeepers. Um, although he was the captain, he probably shouldn't have been in the eleven. Yeah, which of course
1: adds to the whole, leg, the whole mythology around combi.
2: Yeah, it's just one last job. It's yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. And he'd been one of the three accountants with, uh, with uh, Rosetta and Caligaris, And they were all at the fag end of their careers. And Pozzo uh, very well, famously left Caligari's and Rosetta out of the starting lineup. Um, seemingly, um, in the, before the semi-final, there is a, uh, um, there is a, a version of events that says that Mussolini insisted that, uh, Eraldo Monselio, who played for his Bologna, uh, played, um, played the semi-final, uh, in, instead of Rosetta from, from uh, non-fascist Chirin. But yeah, I mean, Combi is uh, those those three guys. But Combi specifically mm-hmm. is part of the kind of the, the mythology of the events in Italian football.
0: Yeah. I thought I thought someone was going to say, of course, the conditions in the final were very hot and Combi was boiling or something like that. But <laughs> That's uh, very kind of <laughs> you to leave that for me. But uh, but back to, in, in the tournament itself, I mean, again, going back to this idea of the sort of the violence that was on the field and so on. Uh, in the quarter final against Spain, um, the refereeing uh, came under a bit of scrutiny there, uh, with a number of injuries to players and and whatnot. And it was it was into the semi final with the game against Austria, where allegations that Mussolini met with several officials before that match, uh, and of course in the, in, in the final itself. But Jonathan, that semi-final against Austria is particularly suspect.
2: Well, I mean, I, th- I think the quarter-final bears talking about as well, that they draw 1-1 okay. the with Spain, <laughs> uh, and Zamora is is the goalkeeper. You have a great Spanish goalkeeper, so badly injured, he can't play in the replay. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, goalkeepers weren't as protected then as they are now. But there does seem to have been a pretty uh, clear plan that if you get near Samara, clatter him. And eventually it works. I mean, he brought the goal as well, but it also means mm-hmm. he doesn't play in the replay, which which Italy win 1-0. Yeah, yeah. seven
1: Spaniards, I think. Um, they, they changed seven players for the for the following day. I mean, football was quite robust at the time, or very obviously, and mm-hmm. it was quite a big ask. But yeah, I think the, the ref, I think, was the Swiss. The ref was Swiss. And he never never refereed again, did he? Um,
2: right, I I don't know that. But, yeah, yeah, he
1: was he was effectively derod the following the following day, and there was a big stink about it in the French press, in particular. It was fairly thuggish. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think the implication is that he was bought, but um, there is substantive evidence to that effect. <laughs> I
2: mean, yeah. where where the sort of the evidence begins to mount up? Because I think there's always. I think you often get allegations uh, about host nations. I, th- yeah, I think that's just a, something that runs through all of football history. So Uruguay, the Argentinians in 1930 would say, oh, yeah, the Uruguayans, say had all these benefits that the crowd intimidated people and whatever. Even England in 66 had that. Argentina in 78, South Korea in 2002. That That's a trope that runs all the way through. And ma- maybe some cases are more truth than others, but I'm sort of inclined to sympathy yeah, you know, just because it it is such a common accusation. Where I think the really big worries about Italy is in '38, when it's played in France, and look at the Brazil team that they beat in the semi final, and ask what on earth led Brazil to drop five of their best players, and then look at the Hungary team in the final, and um, oh god, I've, gone, I've forgotten his name. Uh, I guess uh, I can't remember his surname, but the big Hungarian centre forward is suddenly left out for no reason. And you see the Hungarian press next day can't quite work it out, and this sort of saying, well, yeah, has has our coach just sort of decided that he wants to make it about him and he's going to overcomplicate things, and there's just this bewilderment as to what's happened, as to why on earth Hungary have picked that team. So, so of course, in I, I don't, know, I can't work out why Brazil would have seen it politically useful to uh, butter up Italy in '38, but certainly the Hungary, uh, which was in this very difficult position between the forces of fascism and communism, yeah, you know, trying to get allies was was a huge political um uh necessity at the time. So certainly in Hungary now I think people look back at that thirty eight final and, and ask a lot of questions.
0: But the semi final though with Austria, uh her being this tournament in thirty four, you know, there's a lot of question marks over this.
1: Yeah because Austria had walloped Italy um some months previously, four one I think, or four two. Uh, they actually finished uh, Caligari's career. They'd been destroyed by them, and of course, Austria was the Holy Grail. Austria and Hungary were the Holy Grail. The Italians had never, uh, never, never, they, they were the, the, the great force in world football. So,
0: yeah, I mean,
1: objectively, um, it's but but, my, but the thing with, with 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 the Spanish game in particular is is is, is uh, there's fairly compelling evidence, but. gerrymandering, and in Italian football generally, and still today, I think, Italians aren't so um, deluded as to think that football is just 11 against 11. Um, There's a lot of stuff that informs that. And I think there is a consensus even now in Italy that the Italians won the 1934 World Cup in some way. Um, but I don't think it's perceived with any. Uh, they didn't. What they didn't achieve was any sporting glory, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there is a commonly held belief that yes, they won the World Cup, and it was necessary so to do, and they, and they, they, at whatever cost, it needed to be won. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so, yeah, it's um, it's not something. It exists. They won the thing. But I don't think there's any particular pride in in fact.
2: <laughs> I mean, this Austria team, unfortunately, I think was, it's slightly past the Wunder team's peak. I think if you if you look at the Wunder team, they were absolutely their best, probably around by 32. What they did have was Pepe Bichan, who may or may not be the leading scorer of all time, depending whose statistics you want to believe. Um but Bichan was this sort of um tall, he was quick, he was a great finisher. And he had this great partnership with Matthias Sindelar, the 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 paperman, the, paper the Papierena, um, who we talked about a lot uh when we uh did the podcast with with Kat Peterson. Um and they had a great forward line. their goalkeeper wasn't there, Rudy Heedon um had you know had gone and he was the real great keeper. So it. it it's just a shame the way they were for Austria, the way the World Cups fell, that yeah, you know, they they weren't there in thirty and by the time it got to thirty four, they weren't quite at the height they'd been in thirty two. And what ends up happening is that Sindelar, who was this sort of deep lying centre forward, and Beachan would play inside right and, and run beyond him, that Monty picks up Sindelar and does a job on him.
0: Hmm. But what about um the Czechs, Jonathan? You know, obviously beaten finalists. I mean, they'd beaten Romania, Switzerland and Germany on the way. Were they seen as, as one of the top sides in Europe?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, very much part of that Danubian tradition. Mm-hmm. Maybe not quite at the level of, of Hungary and Austria, but definitely a good side. Uh, Niedli, the the inside forward was sort of their Sindlau equivalent, this sort of slight creator. And again, Monty picked him up and did a job on him. Um, but the goalkeeper, Plenicca, is, I think, one of the, the great European goalkeepers of all time. So, yeah, they, they, they were absolutely a Seen as a great side and and um,
1: overwhelming yeah. favourites for the final, so
2: yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and uh, so the the allegations that, as I mentioned earlier, Mussolini meeting with several officials beforehand and, and so on and so forth. Is there much? Uh, how is the the young Swedish referee Ivan Erkling? Uh, 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 where does he fit into all this? He's the youngest referee still, I believe, to officiate a final at the age of. 29 herbie interesting uh, yeah I, I don't
1: I mean it,
0: it, Or fact rather
1: yeah it's not um, where I say the Swiss guy is because is infamous and obviously his career ended um, after the Spain game I don't know much actually about the, about the the, the mm. I don't think there's any direct implication or inference that the Swedish that the guy that the guy was bought in the final um, it's clear that you know the Italians kick them off the park but I'm not Entirely sure um, that uh, there's, a, there's any kind of uh, suggestion that he was corrupted per se. Though I wouldn't I would be in the least surprised, but, um, <laughs> but I don't think it's ever kind of
0: sure. It's not.
1: It's not, it's not in the public domain.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting to say that going into the game that Czechoslovakia were the overwhelming favourites. Is that how they saw it in Italy? Were they were they concerned or were they quietly confident? No, I think mean,
1: the Czechs are. Oh, Objectively, were a better side, mm-hmm. um, um, and uh, but they, as you as you say, Jonathan, they kind of they were they were new to them. the first. The first half, by all accounts, was fairly sterile. Um, there is a kind of a perception that the Italians were paralysed by fear, and 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 and, and sort of at the wish they they the, the Czechs took the lead. Twenty minutes left, they they gave it a go. Um,
2: it was but, a very hot day as well wasn't it Yes. That, that, that seems to be mentioned in a lot of reports, so whether that held people back a bit
1: conceivably yeah um but um
2: i think that i think the point of all of this
1: is it, is it, it's fairly nebulous you know um and i think that that kind of um and that's attached itself to to the to the Azzurri and to italian football you yeah. know um subsequent too it's it's uh uh, nobody really knows what happened. Um, but... Well, I
2: mean that's an interesting point in itself. That the footage that's available from this game mm. is nowhere near as good as the footage from the previous final, the 1930 mm. final. There's, I wouldn't say there's lengthy highlights, but there's a good sort of six or seven minutes, and they've been sort of, I don't know what you do to them, but they've been enhanced somehow, and they've put a kind of colour filter over, and it, it, you know, you can watch it and you can understand what's going on in the game, whereas this. You get some images, you see balls flashing at the nets, you see a lot of Italians kicking cheques, yeah. and apart from that it's, it's pretty hard to work out what's going on.
0: Yeah, I was going to be cruel to Jonathan, Say, but why don't you talk us through the game? <laughs> you know? an, there's an
1: interesting thing happened um, in Milan uh, that afternoon as well because it was the final stage of the Giro d'Italia talk about cycling, which is my thing. But uh, Learco Guerra, who was the most famous cyclist in Italy, was a, a card-carrying fascist. And at the, almost simultaneously, at the point at which uh, uh, the winner was scored in Rome, the Guerra clinched the Giro d'Italia, having tried for many, many years and failed. So you'd got this. Uh, so, uh, and, and that obviously um, equally kind of rubber stamps fascism's sporting superiority, if you will. Know. So, one way, and, and, and obviously the footballers, the, the, the racing drivers, all of the sportivi were kind of perceived as great as great fascist ideologues and uh, and so um it was so whilst they were winning in Rome they were also winning the Giro, which was and it, and at that point cycling was still just about the most popular sport, though football was catching up. So one way or another it worked out really well for the regime.
2: Yeah. So that's, that's like that moment when Leicester sealed the Premier League just as Mark Selby's winning the world snooker title.
1: Yeah absolutely well kind of <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, obviously you know Italy they, they, they scored the winning goal it was in extra well, we, time we right? we can
2: talk through the goals from from reading the metropolis. Well, if you think you can do it then far well, away we we know that um, I mean this is disputed even whether it's a 71st or a 76th minute <laughs> but on the 70 something minute um, Antonin Pich, the Czech right winger uh, he's just been clattered by Ferraris he's been off the pitch so actually comes on the pitch to help carry him off <laughs> and they wave some ammonia or something under his nose. He goes back on, and on this sort of drug induced high, he sort of uh, he takes the pass, goes past Monzellio, and sort of slices a shot in at the near post. So that's maybe fifteen minutes, maybe twenty minutes to go, and the Czechs lead. Uh, and then uh, nine minutes to go, Orsi, the one of the Oriundi, the, the the played for Argentina in the twenty eight Olympic mm. final, um, and it's it's actually a really nice run from him from from what you can make out um, that he goes past one defender and he sort of it appears that he shapes to shoot left footed and then actually hits it with the outside of his right foot uh, and it then just sort of floats uh, over Plinitschka and there's, I think in the Czech press there's some discussions as to whether Plinitschka should have done better but Plinitschka was only 5 foot 8 so I kind he of could, think
0: it, he could just deny it, couldn't he? No, no. <laughs> well
1: <laughs> people generally were a lot shorter, of course. Combi would yeah, yeah, have five right, yeah. seven Yeah.
2: Yeah, but I mean the footage does show the ball going just under the bar, so I guess if you're five foot eight that is quite hard to to get. Uh so Ga game goes into extra time and five into, into extra time. Uh and, and actually the where Pozzo does do something tactical yes. is he switches over uh Chiavio and Goyita, Uh which Seems to cause chaos for the Czechs, um, and if you if you again, footage is quite hard to make out. But the the Czech centre half Chambal seems to be missing. I don't you know who who knows where, but he's he's not in the position to expect the centre half to be. Uh, and Potsos carried him off the field, maybe yeah. the tactics. <laughs> and Miata plays a 3 ball to Gaeta, goes in the box and plays it to Xavió, who he scores. Uh, so. There's some some suggestion. Matheson might have handled the ball in the build-up, but I'm really not positioned to judge that for Again, him. For we yeah. will never know, will yeah. we?
0: Um, <laughs> and then they win the World Cup. I mean, it, it is interesting when when you talk about this Italian side and obviously the allegations of uh, match fixing and, and and so on and so forth and bribes and whatnot. I mean, they, they they won this tournament. They did win the 1935 Central European International Cup, which was a you know, a big tournament at the time. You've mentioned they won the 36 Olympics and they went on to win the 38 World Cup in France, admittedly in, in, in dubious uh, circumstances. Well, I don't
2: think there's any doubt they were a really good side. It's whether they are a really good side plus. I think it's it's, mm-hmm. it's the extent of that plus. They weren't jokers by any means. They were a really, really good football team.
0: Yeah, but uh, that but this period, this sort of 1930s period, of Italian football, uh, Herb, you say is obviously very important. It's this kind of the the makings of of Italy. How is it viewed now in its sort of entirety? Is it is it seen as a sort of a, a dominant period, or people sort of slightly, uh, for want of a better word, embarrassed because of the, the politics surrounding it? No,
1: I think it's, I think it's the, be, the the beginning of football's kind of ascent to the top of the sporting paradigm, and it's it's associated with that. Um, it um and you know that process if you like was speeded up or uh, by by television so these are two pivotal moments i think um the the period 34 to 38 was instrumental in kind of cementing it as the national sport you know it was ever thus um think about you know we think about Boris Becker and Steffi Graf made tennis extremely popular in Germany in the same way that Wiggins and Cavendish did cycling. And it was, you know, that's just the way it is with sport, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. the champions that, that that create this kind of groundswell. So I think it was very important in that respect. The five years of, I mean, my book is about Juventus, obviously, in the five years of, 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 of five consecutive championships for Juventus, were 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 very important in this idea of Juventus being Italy's team, the Juve Nazionale. So yeah, it was it was the beginning, if you like, of football as a mainstream or as the mainstream sport. Fifty thousand people in a stadium—that had never happened before.
0: Mm-hmm. And what is the? I suppose, Jonathan, what what, what is the kind of overall sort of um influence and sort of legacy Pozzo's had in terms of his coaching methods and all that in the wider, more international game?
2: Um well I mean I think Herbie's right that I think he was not a tactical innovator in any sense. yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think he, he understood football, but yeah, you know, I think if you look at the sort of the the sort of really clever pioneering coaches of the the thirties and forties, they, they tend to be Hungarian and Austrian. So you look at what Weiss did for instance yeah, he Vice was clearly a genius, or or Bukovy just after the war. And I think Potts is a little bit like uh Shebes in in Hungary from forty nine three to fifty six. That he was a great sort of uh, yeah, he was a manager rather than a coach. He was very good at, at understanding how the system worked, he pointed the right people. So I don't think he's got a great coaching legacy. I think his his legacy I mean Herbie will know more about this than I do, but his legacy in Italy is sort of disputed that there were suggestions in 1990 that the Deli Alpi should be named after him, but because he was perceived as having had links to fascism, that was vetoed. But then he's sort of been exonerated because it was found that he'd helped partisans towards the end of the war. That, I mean, that all seems very complicated and not particularly convincing to me. But com-
1: It's all very complicated. Uh, you couldn't not be a fascist. The reality, is, if you wanted to, if you wanted to uh, get ahead in any form of life, um, it was implicit that you'd be a fascist. And so... Um, we kind of view it, view that stuff through a 21st century prism. Or you talk about the Italian 90 thing. Um, very obviously, you couldn't not, you couldn't do his job if he weren't. You you just you, you you subscribed, you know. And and if you didn't, I mean, Alemandi would be would be another one that he was. Um, big scandal around Alemandi, and they, they they always say that he was a scape, scapegoat because he was the one uh, famous Italian player that wasn't in the party. So yeah. Um, but I think the first, probably the first great Italian coach would be Carcano, um, mm-hmm. uh, and and there's all sorts of kind of stuff around him and his.
2: Well, I mean, the the, the suggestion is that he was sacked for being gay. Uh, yeah, uh, well,
1: yeah, because homosexuality didn't actually exist under fascism, in the same way that prostitution didn't exist. Uh, <laughs> oh, he's uh, there. There were rumours that he'd that he was sodomising in the in the fascist vernacular. Um, the, the Juventus players but yes he's uh, he was ushered out um, in 1930 uh, that December actually shortly after uh, the World Cup win uh, and kind of uh, lived out the rest of his days somewhere on the Ligurian coast so yeah he he left in disgrace um, because Juve needed to project a certain set of values and the players needed to be perceived as Italian Patriots rigor. um Kind of, uh, and 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 so yeah, it was. But but it, there, there were a lot of rumors in and around Turin that he was
2: homosexual. Hmm. I mean, th- this is something that that fascinates me, and I, I don't quite understand that. Um, clearly, you know, uh, an integral part of fascism is this focus on militarism and muscularity and rigor. To use the word you you just used, and clearly these these two, you know, Italy won the World Cup in thirty four and thirty eight. Had this rigor, this physical toughness. And then you read Gianni Brera writing, you know, after the Second World War, and his argument is always, Italians are a weak race, we're a small race, that's why we always get invaded, and so we need to be clever, we need to be more cunning, we need to be more cynical than, than the rest. And that's how he sort of justifies defensive football. So how, how, how do those two things marry up? The rigour of a team of the 30s and Brera's belief in some kind of Italian physical inferiority?
1: Well, I think... It's true to say that whatever they were doing in the 30s was effective. So the cynicism, yeah, or the gamesmanship, or call it what you will, the stuff that attacked, that worked, broadly speaking, it worked. They won two World Cups and they won the Olympics. Um, And so, I think in general, Italian sport doesn't subscribe to some kind of dim-witted Corinthian value system, it would be very nice it would be very nice if it did but actually it's about winning and sport is not indivisible from uh, you know the life quotidian here to get on in this country at times living in this country it feels like a, a chess match between the individual and the state in this country and you <laughs> and you have to be what the what the Italians would would call scaltro which is a bit savvy you know so the Italians have a reputation for being Mm. Quite clever, and you know the italians the reputation the Italians do have it's because to get along here you need to be able to circumvent mm. bureaucracy um and 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 so um yeah there so so and that obviously is reflected in the way they do sports and specifically in the way they do football um mm. so yeah there's um which you know plays back into the whole idea of Juventus. Being particularly good at cheating, you know, and 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 by and large, fifty of the, percent of the Italian population is convinced that they're just really, really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> and that and, wow. that, and that, in turn plays into the whole dialogue, the, the whole thing about the referees, you know, because um, it can't, it can't not be like that because this is Italy. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I feel that's a good place to stop, Herbie. <laughs> 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 for all of our sakes um, but uh, it's been really fascinating uh, talking to you and, and hearing all your, your thoughts on the 1934 World Cup final and so much more of course so thank you very much for coming on the podcast. thank you very much uh, for more stories like that do check out theblizzard.co.uk uh, but once again uh, thank you to Herbie um, cheerio from Jonathan and myself we'll be back next week with another great game from the history of football see you then